Uh, in Luke chapter 19, if you don't mind, open up your, uh, your Bible. We're going to go ahead and dive right into the text uh, this morning. We've been spending um, 2019 in the book of Luke. Um, and so since the end of January, about that time till now, we've really just been, and, and, and I hope in your mind you'll do this, picture yourself on the path with Christ, following him as a disciple um, and going through this journey from chapter 9 until now, we really have set our face toward Jerusalem. Um, this is how important the last week of Jesus' life is. There are four Gospels. Four chapters in those four Gospels are dedicated to the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Um, 85 chapters in those four books are dedicated to three years of his life. And 29 of those chapters are dedicated to the final week of his life. This, this week, this entering into Jerusalem, closing out his ministry is the focal point of all of the gospels. And what we want to do in chapter 19 is step back and say, what's really going on here? What, what message are we supposed to glean from this? Cause this chapter, chapter 19 is incredibly powerful, but I do think it needs to be looked at as a unit. And I think that's true. We did that last week with chapter 18, and we're going to do it again in this chapter, looking at these stories. We're going to talk about Zacchaeus. We're going to talk about the parable of the Ten Minas. Uh, we're going to talk about um, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the cleansing of the temple. I think this is all supposed to be looked at as one unit. See, there's a message in this. So I want you to just picture this. You're on the road with him, and in the close of, of last week, uh, the disciples came to Jesus. I don't think it was self-righteous, but they were just saying, listen, this is what we've done. They said this, we have left everything to follow you. And so Jesus responds by saying, we're going to Jerusalem. Um, you, you haven't given everything yet. Because you're going to follow me to Jerusalem, and this is going to mean picking up your cross, looking where I'm going, and heading with me to a very difficult and dangerous place. Jerusalem was the headquarters of everything that was hostile. Um, not just is this where the temple is, where the Pharisees, the Sadducees, where the Sanhedrin is. This is where King Herod is. Now remember, King Herod, from the time Jesus is a baby is looking to kill Jesus. Now, we're going to be dealing with a different Herod now. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the Herods are the ones that want to kill Jesus. Why? Because he's king. He is king in Jerusalem. He's been appointed king by Rome. And this man threatens him as the king in Rome. So we're going to begin this journey. We're going to begin with um, um, going into Jericho. Now, what's interesting about this is this is the only time, this is only the second time in Scripture, really, we've been able to focus on Jericho. You remember the first time, Joshua's coming through. And I just want you to imagine, if you're on this road through Jericho, Jericho, by the way, is the oldest city on planet Earth. At least that's what the sign says in Jericho. I, I'm not sure, I'm not going to get into the, all, all the archaeology, but it's a contender, 10,000 years old, some people say. I don't know. I don't get into all that. But ancient, ancient city. It's also the lowest city on earth. It's below sea level. It's one of the most beautiful places that you could go to. It is a lush, beautiful place. But the lowest place on earth and the oldest place on earth, but more importantly, the gateway into Israel for Joshua. 
And when you were walking down this road, going through Jericho, on your way to Jerusalem, I wonder if what's going through their minds. Have you ever done this? Have you ever gotten to go to some famous place where a battle took place? Or something amazing happened? Maybe you stood at the 9-11 memorial and your, your mind stopped and said, Wow, what happened in this place? in the history, and you've been there, and you're just in your mind go back to the battle that took place, or whatever it was. They would be going down this road, remembering, wow, Joshua walked down this road. The 12 tribes, the Ark of the Covenant, walked down this road that we're on right now, and the same thing is happening. Can you see this picture of the 12 surrounding Jesus as the Ark of the Covenant? The same thing is happening. It's so incredibly rich. We're going on this invasion right now. And and when the 12 spies went into Jericho, they entered a woman's house. She was a sinner. She was a sick woman. All of society looked at her and said, that woman is a sinner. She's a prostitute. But they invaded her home and invaded her life and righteousness came to that woman. And she became a daughter of Abraham and became part of the lineage of Christ, Rahab. Salvation came to her house, even though she lived in the wall. This is the history of Jericho. You're on the path following Jesus, and maybe these stories are going through your minds. So Jesus enters Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. His name, by the way, means righteous one. Now, if you're a tax collector and you're short and everybody hates you, the last name you want is righteous one. His name is righteous one. He's the chief tax collector. He's wealthy. He's hated by the people. And this man is just looked at as a complete sinner. Um, The text says this. um, He's a short man, uh, but he couldn't see Jesus. It says, because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So we came down at once and welcomed him gladly. First thing I want you to catch in this chapter is this. Jesus is not asking permission. Jesus does not ask him if he can stay at his house. How about that? Jesus just walks up to him and says, I'm coming to your house. There are very few people in this room, and I'm close to a lot of you. There are very few people in this room I'm comfortable enough with to say, I'm coming to your house today. I actually did that to the Martins a few couple years ago. But I'm going to your house. I'm coming to your house. I'm not asking you. I'm coming. Okay? This is what he says to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus comes down and welcomes him gladly. The crazy thing about this story is Zacchaeus is looking just to see Jesus. But Jesus is searching out Zacchaeus. He sees him and he's coming for him. Um, because he, he's bringing salvation to him. It says this, the text goes on and says, all the people saw this in verse seven and began to mutter, he's gone to be a guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anyone out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Jesus says to him, today, Salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. 
For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Um, if there is a one verse that I, I chose this verse to put up here, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But the other verse in the book of Luke that I was thinking really encapsulates the theme of the book is this verse. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. More importantly, He came to seek and save what belongs to Him. He's coming for Zacchaeus because even though everybody else looks at Zacchaeus and says, self-righteous, sick, sinner... Jesus looks at him and he says, this is my child, my son, and I'm going to come rescue him. Um, 1,400, 1,500 years earlier, I don't put my maths probably off, Joshua comes into this city with the exact same thing, and this woman that was treated at probably never had a man come into her house that treated her with dignity or respect until the Jews came, and she's given a new identity. She's given a whole new image in Christ, and she comes to be a child of Abraham. And you're seeing the same thing happen once again on the road to Jericho. And it's in this context that Jesus tells this parable of the ten minas. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and just go ahead and take you to um, verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem. Again, we're on the road now coming into Jerusalem. He was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Jesus is coming in as the king, restoring his kingdom. They think that, for good reason. Daniel said that that's what was going to happen right here, right now. These circumstances, all of the prophets are pointing to this moment. They really are. And it goes on and he says this. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So we called 10 of his subjects and gave them 10 minas. A mina is about three months' wages. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Now, the first thing I want you to catch when you're looking at this parable of the ten minas, because this parable goes really dark in a hurry. But it begins just by saying this. Um, I'm giving you money for you to put to work. This is not your money. Very important in the parable. This is not your money. I gave you the illustration last week of my dad when I was in high school giving me the car, and then he sold it, and I said, how did you sell my car? I didn't sell my car. My mom corrected me at the end. She said, actually, it was my car. But I was entrusted with it. I wasn't given it. This money is not given to these men. It is not their money. They have been entrusted with this money and called to put it to work, called to put it to service. Um, Before I go on, I want to tell you a little bit about the history that might have been relevant to them surrounding this parable. These are the seven Herods. So when you hear the word Herod or the name Herod, there were actually seven of them. Herod Antipater, Herod the Great, Herod Archelaus, Herod the Philip, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa II. Six of the seven Herods are mentioned in Luke, Acts. Um, I, I gave you three important references. Herod the Great 
was at war with baby Jesus, wanted to kill Jesus when he's a child. Herod Antipas is going to be the Herod right now. This is the Herod that killed John the Baptist. This is the Herod that, um, to which Christ will be brought in the coming weeks. Um, Herod Agrippa the One is going to bring this, this persecution towards the church. Uh, I showed lines kind of pointing to what emperors were under when this is happening. But what I want you to catch in the story is these Herods were appointed by these emperors, Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and each one would go to Rome, particularly, um, I'm looking at this guy right here, Achilleos, uh, famous because he went to Rome to be appointed king. And the people of the region said, we don't want you to be king. And so they followed him to Rome, and there was a delegation saying, do not make this man king. The Jews hated the Herods. You remember why? These are the Edomites. The sworn enemies of Israel are now their kings, their rulers. That's why the word Edom comes from Esau. It means red. They're from the red region. Um, so I made them red. Follow me. I'm going to bore you with history, then I hope to hit you with it. So all these Herods, they're appointed king, they come back, and when they came back, Archelaus, what does he do? He slaughters the people that didn't want him to be king. Now this is the history the Jews were aware of. Jesus is telling this parable, and they're like, I know what you're talking about. I, I know this story. This is how it works, man. This is how the Herods work. And Jesus is taking this situation, and he's saying this, listen, man goes away to be king, but he will be made king. And he comes back and he's going to demand what belongs to him. And so in this parable of these, of these, um, Minas, uh, it kind of parallels the, the parent of the, uh, parable of the talents in Matthew. This is what the people say to him. Verse 16. The first one came and said, sir, your Mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mean has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in. You reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I'll judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that, I love it that he says this, why didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away. Give it to those who have ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But to the one who has nothing, even what he has, will be taken away. And how about verse 27? But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. These are all the parts of the, the Gospels that they don't teach us on flannel graph when we're kids. But, but he closes the parable by appealing to the story that they were familiar with. But here is the point of the parable of the Minas. One, personally, I don't think this is talking about evangelism. Almost every book I've read, every sermon I've ever heard said, man, if you're not evangelizing people, you're going to go to hell at the end of the day because you're not being responsible. I think it can relate, but it's not talking about that. The point of this parable is simply to say this. 
Your life is not your own. You have been entrusted with it. You've been entrusted with your gifts. You've been entrusted with salvation. You've been entrusted with the next breath. But it does not belong to you. I'm going to get ahead of myself here and say this. You can't make Jesus king. He is king. He, you don't get to vote. You come from a nation where we vote about these things. And if you don't like the president, you put the bumper sticker on your car that says he's not my president. That's what you're from. That's not the way a monarchy works. And so you need to put yourself in the mindset of a monarchy here. These people recognize king language. He is king. This king comes back and he makes demands. And he says, this was mine to begin with. I entrusted you with it. If somebody does not wear the name Christ, they don't accept Christ, they don't call themselves a Christian, Jesus Christ is no less their king. He's still their king. And at the end of the day, there's not a soul in this room or not in this room that will not bow and honor him as king. And there's not a soul that does not is going to be able to stand and say, this is my life. Because if your life belongs to you, I'm sorry, I've got to get back to my text. If your life belongs to you, show me that you can keep it. If it really belongs to you, to you, show me that you can hold on to it. No, you've been entrusted with your life. It's not yours, and it's been given to you for what? A purpose, a reason. I have been given my breath to honor God. And you can apply this to evangelism, and I think that's true. But there's so much more to what we're talking about in this text than simply evangelism. We're talking about taking what he's given to us and honoring with him and saying, this is his. So he comes to Zacchaeus and he says, I'm going to your house. I'm bringing salvation. He tells the parable of the ten minas and he talks about a king that was appointed and comes back and he says, I am king. And he makes some demands. And now we're getting into the most amazing verses. In fact, um, just maybe because I didn't sleep much last night, I was super, I was weeping during Daniel when we were reading some of the text this morning. But I want to get into Psalm 118 in just a minute. But let's go ahead and jump ahead to verse 28. Um, let me take a breath. All right, we're good. I know, come on. Yeah, all right. Verse 28, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there. No one has ever ridden it. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked, what are you untying the colt for? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Man, they're singing Psalm 118 right now. And if you thought, man, the people are rejoicing, and I'm going to speculate right now, so everything I'm about to say is totally Jeff, but I'm imagine being the disciples on this road, and all the people are singing Psalm 118, the king's coming in. Man, these guys were terrified to even go to Jerusalem. Now I'm on the road with Jesus, and they're calling him king on the road into Herod's village. Man, I'm ready to turn around if I'm following God. You would be terror struck by this whole scene. Right, riding in and the people putting palm branches on the ground. There's another scene I want you to be familiar with. This has happened before. And when we're quoting Zechariah 9.9 about the king coming humble and riding on a donkey, it's humble. It's a way of showing peace. But make no mistake, the king riding on a donkey that has never been ridden before is a sign of kingship. The last person that did this was Judas Maccabees. He came in riding on a donkey. They laid, they laid palm branches down at his feet. They called out the same thing. And guess what else they said when Judas Maccabees rolled in? Crazy history. Hosanna. Hosanna. Bring salvation to us now. Bring salvation to this place. But honoring him as king. And so when you see the palm branches, when you hear Hosanna, when you see the donkey, when you see this whole procession, one clear message. I am coming as king. I am the king coming into my house. And I am not asking permission. I am not going to knock on the door. I am coming in to reign as king. And so... All of the people respond, the Pharisees respond like this. Uh, let's see, I'm going to be um, down here in uh, verse 39. Uh, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. So the people shouting praise, dancing, Jesus weeping, Jesus crying, Jesus looking at this city, and the word it uses for weeping here, it's not the same word that's used um, in when it says Jesus wept when Lazarus died. That word means he, he did the thing that I always do. Um, here, a different word is used. It's the word for wailing. He's wailing, crying out over Jerusalem. Man, I'm sorry. He's crying out over Jerusalem. If you had only known this day, what would bring you peace? But it's hidden from your eyes. If only today you knew. And he says this, a lot of your versions word it this way, and I love it that it's worded this way. If you recognized the day of your Lord's visitation. If you had recognized that all of the prophets, everything pointed to this moment, this place, this time when your king was going to come redeem you and save you. But he's looking at this house that has been left wicked and sick and taken over by enemies and a temple that's overrun with people buying and selling. And that takes us to verse 43. If it's not bold enough that he comes into lower Israel, that he comes into Jerusalem, that he comes into this city saying, I'm the king. He walks immediately into the temple courts. 
These temple courts, um, um, this was a newer temple that had been erected um, that had all kinds of things that the original temples didn't have. There was a wall surrounding the temple saying women can't go any further. There was another wall saying Gentiles can't go any further. All of these walls that God never called for that we built. And one of the walls said if a Gentile passes this point, he'll be killed. And they had turned the, the court of the Gentiles, which was given to Israel as a place where the nations could come and worship God. And they had turned it into a place of buying and selling, and they had corrupted it. Racism, sexism, pride, sick things had corrupted the temple as a whole. In verse 43, it says, The days will come upon you in which your enemies will build an embankment against you, encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground. How about this? This is not just in Psalms. Jesus said it too. You and your children... Within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling, it is written, he said, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. They could not find a way to do it because the people hung on his words. I want to fast forward my slides a little bit. Go back to this image that you have of the kings. These are the kings of the world. These are the kings they knew. Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Claudius. Um, Right here before... uh, on this side, right here after Nero's death, he was the chief persecutor of the early, a lot of the early church. Uh, his four generals came back to assume the role of king. Uh, we call it Caesar. The original Greek word is actually pronounced Kaiser. And you familiar our German word Kaiser comes from that. It just means king. These kings were coming back in uh, Gabaoth and Vitellius were the name of the first three. They came back, each ruled three months apiece, killed each other off. Vespasian was the smart one. He waited till everybody killed everybody. He came back in and started reigning. But these were the kings. These were the kings that everyone looked to and said, man, that, he is king. Jesus, you're a carpenter. Herod is king. He's the one living in the palace. He's the one in control. He's the one that has jurisdiction. And the church and Jesus, everyone felt trapped by this. The persecution began with baby Jesus. You see it with John the Baptist. You see Jesus on the cross. And you see the church and the big enemy that they're looking at. Herod, the king, the Kaisers. These are the real kings. Revelation paints it like this. I saw seven heads. I saw a beast that came up. It was a red dragon. Red, Edom, dragon, seven heads, the Herods, trying to kill baby Jesus. This is the image of Revelation chapter 12. They take it and they artistically put it in this language. And that dragon is trying to wage war against the the woman and her offspring. And then the church and the church is taken to a place where they're taken care of for three and a half years. It's Pella. Where they were covered, they were covered and they were protected by this God. And the early church saw this war and all the kings and the great point of revelation, the entire 
message of Revelation is this. Revelation 19. I saw a rider on a white horse. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings. Lord of lords. When he came into his house, whether we're talking about Zacchaeus, whether we're talking about the parable of the ten minas, whether we're talking about him coming into Jerusalem, he was coming in and he's not going to knock. He's asking, he's asking the people, submit to me, open the gates for me. But I am coming to my house. And I will not allow you to take my house and turn it into a den of robbers. Now, next week, I hope you come back. David's going to be bringing us a message. David puts a lot, a lot of time and prayer and love into what he says. And I hope you're here for that. Next week is also Rosh Hashanah. Now, I know that sounds nerdy and I'm a nerd and you, I know we know that. But Rosh Hashanah is the highest holy day of the ancient Jewish year. Next Sunday. Rosh Hashanah is the day on which trumpets were blown. And for 10 days, gates were opened. And when the gates are opened, the nation would present themselves to God and God to the nation. And it's in, in Jewish history, books are opened every year. A book of life and a book of death. This is also a lot of what Revelation is about. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and all of this. And coming and presenting yourself before God and saying, I'm opening my heart, I'm opening my mind, and I'm presenting myself to you, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The message for us here today and you know I love history and I get into some of this, but I need to stop and just address us. There is a mindset that your life belongs to you and we make a decision about giving it to Christ or not giving it to Christ. You can live your life for whatever you want to live your life for. But at the end of the day, your life belongs to Christ. And he does demand at the end of the day that I will take it back. And in this message that we have here of a king that comes into his temple, his house. And he says, what have you done with my house? And you've never seen anger or rage in Jesus like you see in this moment. I don't know how. I think it's the greatest miracle in all the Gospels that a man went into the temple and flipped over tables and did all of this and didn't die that day. But he goes in and does this and he says, this is my house. Listen, your heart and your mind, we are the temple of God. That's 1 Corinthians 3 and 6. You are the temple of God. You were created for a purpose. Your life, your heart, your mind, your efforts, your energy were created to be a temple, a place of praise. And my prayer is that he will enter us, come into every single one of us and remind us this morning, remind us of this one message. This is my house. This is my house. And I will not allow it to be given to things that are sick. And I will take it back. What belongs to me? Uh, Jesus is invading Jerusalem with grace. And there are lives in this room right now that need to be invaded with grace. And the cool thing about Zacchaeus, 
He just wanted to see Jesus. And there's people in here right now that, man, you just want to come and check out church. You want to see what it was like. My wife and I were invited over to our, my neighbor's house last night. And I got to have dinner with them. And it was really cool. There's amazing people. But you know how it is? Um, you know how it is when you're talking about something casually with somebody? But in your heart, you're thinking, this is, this is life and death. Um, I'm having a casual conversation about church, you know, and I'm thinking, your life belongs to God. Your life belongs to him. This isn't a fun club that we're a part of. This is life. This is everything. And I pray that God would put that message and that mission in our hearts this morning to understand um, it's not a decision we make. He is king of kings. And Lord of Lords. And I pray that he will take every ruler and authority. Everything that exalts itself up in our lives above him. And that he will remind us that he will reign as our king. The text Daniel shared this morning in Colossians 1. All things were created by him and for him. Father, I just want to ask that you would be exalted in your temple today. God, that you would reign as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, God, that we would not treat you in a a flippant manner or not take your kingdom seriously. I pray, God, that we would feel the power and the impact of this praise as Jesus walks into Jerusalem but we'd also feel the power and the impact of his wailing and crying out over people that he loves. And I ask God that you would put the same heart in us, uh, the same mind, uh, that when we go forth into this world and we sing a song like, this is my father's world, I pray, Father, that we would go with the same heart of Christ, uh, lift up to you every thought, every action, our heart, everything that we are. And I pray, God, that you would come in and that you would reign as king. And that you would flip tables upside down again in us. And that this temple will be a, this house will be a house of praise for you. I love you, God, so much for the impact of, of Jesus' words. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship our God.